once long ago in the time before time, far away in the kingdom of Rajagaha, when Magadha was king there, the Bodhisatta was born as an elephant into the royal herd. And this was not an ordinary animal. The little elephant's skin was a rich, dark color like polished rosewood. Their eyes glittered like finely cut diamonds, manifesting five kinds of brightness. Their mouth and tongue were a deep scarlet color, like cloth woven from the finest Benares silk. Their trunk shone like silver flecked with red gold, and their feet glowed as if from within, like the finest lacquerware from the temples of Bagan. And so in this way, the little elephant was adorned with the 10 marks that characterize a bodhisattva, one who would become a Buddha. The little elephant was of consummate beauty and grace. And the royal mahout, the elephant trainer, could not help but notice that this was a special animal indeed. And so he assigned his young son the task of taming and training them. So his son's name was Mitra. And he loved the little elephant. And the two soon became inseparable friends. And Mitra named the elephant Devapriya, which means beloved of the devas. And he cared for them with every possible kindness, fed them by hand, and took them daily to the river for a bath. And most afternoons, the two of them could be seen playing together around the the city and along the banks of the river. And Mitra's name was a good choice. It suited him well, for Mitra means friend, but not just any friend. Mitra means a friend who protects you from harm, guides you to the right path, and brings you to happiness. Now, elephants grow fairly quickly. And before long, Devapriya was large enough that Mitra could try riding on their back. And sometimes they would go Uh, wandering around the fields and the pastures on the outskirts of the city. And they were often seen practicing tricks on the banks of the river. And sometimes just for fun, Mitra would ask Devapriya to try balancing on just three legs. And that was easy enough because a tripod is quite stable. And when this was mastered, the half-grown elephant tried balancing only on their back legs or just their front legs and even sometimes tried balancing just on one leg. And Devapriya's movements were always graceful and smooth, and even as they grew into adulthood and attained a massive size, bigger than any other elephant in the herd, with great ears like huge fans and magnificent tusks, they still had graceful movements and stood out from the rest of the elephants. And the stories spread across the city of Devapriya's beauty and talents, balancing and doing other tricks. And people would come from all around to see them and watch the two friends at play roaming about. And, And word of this reached the king's ears. And he commanded that Mitra and Devapriya come before the royal court. And the king was quite taken with the beauty of this elephant and 
um, declared that they would become the state elephant. And Deva Priya was given a special paddock on the palace grounds and received only the finest foods. And one festival day, the king commanded that the city would, should be adorned with all kinds of flower garlands and colored banners. And he instructed Mitra to dress Devapriya in the finest um, harness and trappings and a saddle made of uh, fine leather, tool leather and silk from Benares. The city was adorned all over with garlands of fragrant flowers And Mitra spoke gently to Devapriya and said that the king would be riding upon their back in a parade through the city and that this was a great honor for both of them. And so the king mounted up on the saddle, which was woven in beautiful colors of crimson and gold and emerald green, and rode all through the city, attended by a retinue of uh, people from the palace and court nobles, all dressed in their finery, bedecked with jewels, And people gathered all along the parade route and they were very moved by the sight of this peerless royal state elephant. And they said things like, oh, such beauty, what a stately gait, such fine proportions, such grace. Hail Devapriya, finest of elephants, an elephant truly worthy of a universal monarch. And hearing this praise coming in, the king got jealous because he thought he should be the object of all this adoration and praise. And so he resolved he would have his revenge. And he summoned Mitra to come before him. And he said, do you call that a trained elephant? And Mitra said, yes, yes, indeed. Very well trained, sire. No, growled the king. That elephant is badly trained. One could hardly say such an elephant is trained at all. And Mitra spoke again and said, sire, Deva Priya is very well trained. Well then, said the king, if that elephant is so well trained, can you get them to climb to the summit of Mount Vepulla? Yes, sire, replied Mitra, such a climb is nothing to an elephant of this caliber. Away with you then, said the king. And so he got down off of Devapriya, uh, where he'd been riding, and um, had Mitra climb up and instructed them to go off and climb to the top of the mountain. And so he uh, went there and and then the king and, and his, all his courtiers and the nobles from the palace ascended the mountain. And the king had, the, had Mitra and Devapriya go to the very edge of a high cliff on the top of the mountain. And he said, now, if, as you say, this beast is so well trained, have them stand on three legs. And so Mitra, sitting high on Devapriya's back, spoke softly and said, hi then, my beauty, Oh, my best of friends, stand thou upon three legs. And moving slowly and gracefully, as though without any effort at all, Devapriya raised one leg and stood firmly upon the other three. And it was as if a mighty boulder had come to life and taken on the abilities of a trained dancer. Well then, said the king, let's see them stand just on their front legs. And so the great being gently shifted the weight from their hind legs and stood balanced on just the two forelegs, towering above the crowd there like a mighty tree rooted deeply into the earth. 
Now just on the hind legs, cried the king. And again Mitra spoke gently to his dear friend. Devapriya shifted their weight till they stood just on the hind legs. And just as a Tai Chi master would settle into the horse stance, Devapriya stood strong and firm, yet relaxed and supple like a reed. Well then, said the king, have that elephant stand on one leg. And the mighty being shifted their weight to just one foreleg and balanced without even a twitch of tail or trunk. Incensed that the elephant did not fall off the cliff and fall to their death, the king cried out, now then, if you can, make them stand in the air. At this, Mitra thought, in all of India, there is no elephant as royal (laughs) or well-trained as this. Surely the king is jealous and hopes to make us tumble over the cliff and fall to our death. And so whispering softly in Devapriya's ear, he said, My dear friend, oh, thou finest of elephants, the king wants you to fall over this cliff and get killed. Such a king is not worthy of you. By the power and purity of our friendship and love, and by the merit of all your past skillful actions, rise up now with me upon your back and let us fly through the air to Benares. And so Devapriya, their heart purified by the depth of their love for Mitra, and endowed with marvelous powers that flow forth from great merit, rose up into the air (laughs) and hovered above the king and his courtiers. And floated there like a beautiful cloud outlined in gold, like uh, at sunset sometimes. Amitra spoke and said, Sire, this elephant, pure of heart and possessed with the great powers that arise from merit, is too good for a worthless fool like you. (laughs) Truly none but a wise and good king is worthy to be the master of such a noble beast. When one who is not worthy gets an elephant like this, they don't see or understand their value. Thus they lose not only their elephant, but lose their reputation and the rest of their glory and splendor as well. And now I bid you goodbye. And with this, Devapriya rose higher and higher, circling like an eagle, taking flight, drifted, let out a mighty blast, a trumpet, (laughs) (laughs) and drifted slowly off to the north. (laughs) And so floating above fields and towns, eventually they arrived above the palace in Benares. And they halted and hovered there for a while. And and there was a lot of commotion in the city because this was an unusual sight at that time of year. (laughs) It was really unusual any time. And so they ran to the palace grounds and um, where, where Devapriya was floating and said, look at the royal elephant that has come through the air to greet our king and is hovering over the royal courtyard. And so someone went and told the king And he came out of the palace and said, Greetings, friends. Be welcome here. Please alight that I may greet you properly. So Devapriya slowly floated down, landed in the courtyard. Mitra got down, bowed before the king. And the king said, What's up? How did you happen to come here? And so he told the whole story. And the king said, It was very good of you to come. You are both most welcome here and now. Mikasa es sukasa. <laughs> All things here are yours. And so then the king declared a holiday. 
He had the city decorated with flowers and beautiful garlands, banners, installed Devapriya in the royal stable in a special paddock, brought the finest foods. And then he divided his kingdom into three portions, giving one to Devapriya, one to Mitra, and keeping one for himself. And it's said that his power and good reputation only increased from that day forth until all of India fell under his rule and he became the emperor. And as a ruler, it's said that his, he was so caring and wise that uh, all beings flourished under his care. So there's a few different, um, we might say, teaching threads that could be found in this story. You know, the, the downside of excessive pride and jealousy and, and the suffering that arises when one becomes overly identified with a perceived role or status. But I think it's, it's really the power of friendship and love, the quality of metta that really resides at the heart of this story. And so tonight I'd like to continue my exploration of the teachings that we find in the Metta Sutta, which I gave, uh, started, oh, those many days ago, whenever it was. So you might remember that I talked about how the Metta Sutta is, is kind of in three parts. And last time I started going through the first part of the teaching with uh, reflections on uh, this cultivating what what the Buddha referred to as the skill of goodness and uh, some of the reflections there about leading a careful life, a simple life, a life of uh, humility and um, just mindfulness and care in our actions and how we how we arrive in the world and that section uh, ends with two lines that I'd like to start with tonight. And those are, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. And there's just a couple of things I'd like to uh, touch on in these lines that end that kind of first section. That's kind of an introduction to uh, metta practice, you could say. And the first of these is that we might actually acknowledge, open to the possibility that there are those who are wise and that we might even care what they think. You know, and this runs really counter to a lot of our culture these days in this country where we seem to glorify so many who we would never consider embodied anything remotely resembling wisdom, and often really just the opposite. There's two lines from a song this reminds me of. It says, patriotism is the last refuge to which a scoundrel clings. Steal a little and they put you in jail. Steal a lot and they make you king. And it's kind of really gets right to the way things are these days sometimes. 
I also want to bring in the spirit of two qualities that I think one of my colleagues may have have introduced at some point. Um, these are two Pali words, hiri and otapa. And uh, the word hiri is uh, regret or wise remorse. And otapa, conscience or concern. And the Buddha called these qualities sukha lokapala, which means the bright guardians of the world. Bright guardians of the world. Loka means the world, sukha. Uh, brightness, uh, different from the different spelling from sukha that means happiness, means brightness. And these guardians, lokapala, guardians of the world. This is from Sharon Salzberg and about these two, <clears throat> these two um, qualities, you could say. What is really meant is a very beautiful and delicate sense of conscience. It's like an extreme sensitivity where something inside us just pulls back from harming or hurting. This is a beautiful movement born out of caring deeply for ourselves and others. A sense of conscience isn't the same as being moralistic or judging ourselves or others. Rather, it's developed through the process of having a commitment to care and compassion. And Bhikkhu Bodhi said this, by cultivating and opening to nurturing these qualities within ourselves, we not only accelerate our own progress along the path to deliverance, but also contribute our share toward the protection of the world. Given the intricate interconnections that hold between all living forms, to make Hiriya and Otapa the guardians of our own minds is to make ourselves guardians of the world. So I think of these these qualities as as good friends, as wise friends. And I read one teacher uh, calls them her spiritual friends, spiritual guides. And they're friends that help us to pay attention. They encourage us to take a broad view of things, to take time to reflect. They're friends who sometimes say what's difficult for us to hear because they care about us, they want to protect us, and they want us to be whole. And if we make these qualities our friends as we walk this path, they are really good allies for us. They help us discern what is helpful, onward leading, what leads to peace and freedom, and what isn't. So they're a great support to us as we walk this path to out of confusion, out of delusion, to freedom and ease, to peace. So the next part of the Metta Sutta, in my view, is actually a meditation. It's a practice. The first part describes kind of preliminary qualities that one... Um, explores, investigates, brings to uh, mind and heart when engaging in this kind of practice. And then we, we actually do a metta practice with the next part of this teaching. And, and chanting, this is a chanting tradition. All of the suttas were memorized by people repeating them over and over. And chanting is done a lot in, in the renunciate tradition, 
in the nunneries and monasteries, people are chanting a lot, all the time, in Buddhist countries these days, still. And, and there's something powerful about actually speaking these words out loud and giving voice to them. And there are many other teachings that are, are uh, done as chants. In the morning uh, puja reflection that's done every day in some, in some places, there's a reflection on the uh, five aggregates that Roxanne spoke about. And, and, you know, it's bringing these to mind and reflecting on them with the Buddha's words that attachment to form is suffering, attachment to feelings is suffering, attachment to our perceptions, to mental formations, to consciousness. Form is impermanent. Form is not self, through them all. And just bringing these words to mind in this way, I think can be a, it's like we plant the seeds by um, just giving voice to these understandings. Helps them to land in different ways inside us. And so we can use the words of the Metta Sutta as a Metta practice. And I've certainly found over time that it has been that for me. And I know some of you have uh, spoken to this and, and mentioned that that the doing of the chanting of it, the bringing of these words into voice, bringing them forward, is in itself a, a practice of metta. And so this next part, these are the words. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. This section speaks directly to the qualities of inclusion and unconditionality that are such um, hallmarks and characteristics of, of, the, of metta. Whatever beings exist, without exception, omitting none of them, all sizes and shapes, big ones, little ones, medium-sized ones like us. I think of us as medium-sized ones. Visible ones, invisible ones, nearby, far away. It might be fun and interesting, you know, to really play with this. I've suggested for some, sometimes in the evening, I give out secret teachings to those who come for the chanting. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's too bad, those of you who haven't come. <laughs> yes, and those are the breaks. But anyway, one of my secret teachings is, is a uh, metta practice you can do when you go to bed. Just very simple, light, and playful. It can take a minute. <laughs> it's a quick one. You don't have to work at it. And just radiating metta in different directions because it's often practiced that way to the four quarters, or I like to break them up into eight, and then above and below, and just wash all beings in that direction to be happy and safe and, and let beings come into your mind and heart, you know, different ones, furry ones and ones that hop, and ones that don't hop, 
and small ones and crawling ones. What's, what, how many different kinds of beings can you think of to love? What's the tallest or the longest one or the shortest or smallest? Or maybe we can think of a whole ecosystem as one being, or maybe the whole earth as Gaia, as one giant living organism and wrap and envelop the whole earth with love. And so this is really the essence of metta is this inclusion and this pure benevolence. And it really does have the possibility, the potential to become truly great and unbounded, unconditional, to flow forth in this abundant, immeasurable way that is spoken about in the sutta. And these verses point to the fact that we can practice metta pretty much any time and in any different kinds of situations. We can touch into this quality of heart and we can direct this to anyone, any kind of being, because in a sense, it doesn't matter who we're directing it to because we're, we're touching ways that help us find these qualities in our own minds and hearts. It's how we regard the object. And of course, if we have a particular being and that comes to mind, our wish for their well-being is sincere and real and true. But we need to remember that the purification and the understanding that we're working on that comes out of this practice is within our own mind and heart. So even though we have this sense we're offering metta to a particular being or beings, it's not that we're, the, the healing and protection that arises is in our own mind and heart. It may have benefits far beyond that, There's no way to know. The healing and protection may be very large and and arise in ways that we, we don't ever even think of. But we're healing and protecting ourselves, partly by releasing unwholesome thoughts, by bringing these wholesome uh, thoughts into the mind and heart, and partly by cultivating the beautiful mind states that arise with metta. And so we could think about maybe non-traditional, what strike us as non-traditional ways or times, ways that we might practice metta. We might send metta to trees or to water or to hills or mountains or to the sky. Things that in the moment elicit and connect us to this feeling of goodwill. There's a lot of room for creativity if we're careful. One teacher suggest we might practice metta for things like clouds. And it's not that we're trying to hold on to a particular cloud because clouds are really changeable things. But connecting with friendliness and care in different ways at different times. And and there's probably beings who live in clouds and so we want to get them in too. We don't want to leave anyone out. So in this section that really I see as a metta practice, 
it shifts in tone partway through a little bit qualities of a kind of commentary on the practice and and different images that uh, may help to point to or evoke or um, connect to the emotional tone of, of metta in different ways. And so the first uh, part of this, these next verses um, encourage us to notice and pay attention to uh, the motivational energies that inform our actions and, and our conduct. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. And so this points to the fact that that we live in the world no matter what, to some extent, and no one is entirely independent. And that we all act at times and even refraining from acting is in itself a kind of action. And, and so we want to look and see what is informing the actions that we do. What informs our speech, our conduct? You know, are they born from the intention to deceive another? Because we don't like someone, we, we wish them ill? Are we just acting to gratify our desires or um, our personal gains or acting out of jealousy or envy or resentment or working to undermine someone because we just don't like them? You know, and we see this kind of thing operating in the world, but the teachings in the Metta Sutta suggest a really different way of living. And with mindfulness, we have the possibility to see that our first response is not necessarily the wisest one, not the most noble. And of course, our deeply rooted habits of mind, conditioned patterns do arise at times and they may lead to actions because these deeply rooted mental habits are deeply rooted and they, they show up at times. And they may lead to unskillful actions. But if we think of metta in this definition I, I brought in the first, uh, the first talk on this sutta as kindness with awareness, kindness infused with clarity of seeing, with awareness, with mindfulness, then we can take a broader view of what is happening and we can notice the motivational energies that inform what we're doing. And we can choose whether or not to follow those energies. And I think this, this um, perspective opens the door to compassion as well. You know, even those who seem to be doing everything to cause themselves and others to suffer, to cause harm, they can be the recipient of our love, of metta, of compassion, because we can see that their actions have roots in a network of interdependent conditions and that these have shaped them and led to patterns of behavior 
There's a saying that hurt people hurt people. And someone who who acts in harmful ways, in hurting ways, has learned that behavior through being raised in a hurtful environment, you could say. And they commit harming acts when their, their natural sense of conscience and connection is overwhelmed by ignorance and confusion and suffering. And it's hard to see sometimes, but underneath all of that is a person who wishes to be happy just like any one of us. But there's so much confusion about where and how to find anything remotely like happiness in those hearts, in some people's hearts. And it's not that harmful actions are to be condoned or forgiven because some things are not forgivable and never will be and never should be. But we can possibly open to compassion for a suffering being, a confused and suffering being. We may be able to find some movement towards forgiveness in that area, not what they've done, but that suffering heart. And there's another saying that healed people heal people. And so there's the sense with metta that we are intentionally turning towards goodness. And even though that goodness may be obscured and hard to find, hard to see, it's there. And so this opens the door to the possibility that healing can may take place. And, And so from this perspective, there's no reason to condemn someone as being completely without any possibility for redemption. as hopeless. And so, as I said, we do not condone harmful actions. We draw clear boundaries. We take strong action to prevent harm, to protect when that's possible but we don't have to throw anyone out of our heart and harden our heart. So a few more lines from the sutta. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So these lines, the first couple of lines speak to uh, and bring forward this image of a mother, a mother's love for her child. In this case, manifesting as protection, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, 
And this can bring up a lot for some. Maybe it should say, as a good mother would protect her child. Because sometimes relationships between mother and her child or a parent and offspring in general can be harmful. They're not always, that quality of protection is not always there. And sometimes just the opposite. And there's the reality of um, depression that may come at the time of birth and affect our hearts, the profound loss of freedom that a new mother feels. There's all the different forms that parenting may, may take. But I think we can connect to and appreciate what these words are trying to point to, trying to touch this sense of an emotion that's very universal, very powerful, very organic and accessible, that it can be seen as a a metaphor, an image for the quality of loving kindness. In theory, at least, the love that a mother feels for her child is so immediate and strong, like a biological imperative that a mother would place her own, her child's life before her own. In, in some texts, there's an image of a of metta um, likened to a, a mother cow, cow's love for her new calf, her newborn calf. And there was a time I was living in uh, one of uh, my favorite places, a place Carol and I love to go, called the Sagaing Hills in uh, the upper part of Burma, across the river from Mandalay. Kind of a, it's one of the heart centers of of uh, practice and study of Buddhism in in Burma, in my view at least. Spent so much time wandering through those hills. And there's been practice and study going on there for centuries. They're just steeped in it. It's just all temples and nunneries and monasteries. That's all that's up in those hills. And I was living, um, spending time in robes. I was living as a, an alms mendicant, a bhikkhu, in a cave in one of the small, one of our favorite places. And I would walk down into the Wachet village every morning for my alms. It was a nice cave. <laughs> Pretty good size. <laughs> Even as a little outside upper balcony kind of, but it was a cave, and uh, and I would go follow this uh, route through the town. And one morning, and I went the same way every morning. And one time, I came around this corner, and there was a a cow with a brand new calf, just born. It was just wobbly on its leg, and she was giving it a bath. It probably had been born like a few minutes before I turned the corner. It was really new. And it was just such a beautiful, I, I remembered this image of, of a mother, mother cow's love for her calf when I was, came by. And it, it was this, just evoked this feeling of pure love in a, in a beautiful way, that image. 
So there's this section uh, talks about it with a boundless heart. One cherishes all beings and radiating kindness over the entire world, upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded. So this sense of this um, vastness of metta, this, this sense that, that this quality can be expanded to the point where there's no longer any boundaries in our heart, no barriers to the expression of love and, and care. In my, I, I vision, envision kind of like a vast space that's permeated with metta, with goodwill, and it just flows out effortlessly in all directions. And our heart and mind can become large enough to hold all beings. It's incredible, really. It's a lot of beings, but they fit in there easily. Room left over. And I think there's also something in this that implies the profound impact that a mind imbued with the qualities of the Brahma Viharas can have in the world in our own lives, and and it spills out and touches others. There's a story, there's a a book some of you know about the teacher Deepama, who was a teacher of um, Joseph Goldstein's and others. I'm sure, Carol, you met Deepama, didn't you? Here, here at IMS, maybe Guy and Sally, others. She touched a lot of people's lives. And this uh, story was about um, a time when she was teaching here and it was her time to leave. And uh, the person telling the story said that, that, uh, that so a group of people gathered, I, I picture them out on the steps <laughs> under the sign that says Metta. <laughs> and this person telling this story said that um, just before getting into the car, Deepama turned to her and she placed her hands on top of, I think she was probably holding her hands in Anjali, and she put her hands on top of her hands and looked her in the eyes. And she said, um, this is, this is, these are the words of this person telling the story. She stared at me with utter love, utter emptiness, and utter care. During this minute, she gave me a complete heartfelt transmission of loving kindness. There was Shakti, spiritual energy, you could say, just pouring from her. Then she turned and slowly got into the car. In this one moment, she showed me a kind of love that I had never experienced before. It was a rare kind of love without separation or differences. This was my first taste of what can happen in the presence of an awakened being. That moment is just as powerful today as if it had happened only yesterday. Knowing this love and seeing that it's possible to give it to others has been a real inspiration for me on my path. Deepama is an example of how when the heart is not afraid, love can just pour through. I can't remember if I told this story, so you'll forgive me if I'm telling it a second time. But I I had a similar experience with a a teacher, a highly revered monk named Mahagosananda. Maybe some of you heard of Mahagosananda. Did I speak of him before in this retreat? 
he was the the Sangha Raja, the king of the Sangha, in in the way they sometimes express it in Asian countries uh, from Cambodia. And he was very, very, um, he was very involved with um, raising awareness about landmines that had been left in that country after the uh, after the Vietnam War concluded, and he would lead marches all around. And he also was very um, instrumental in, in refugee camps, in supporting people uh, in refugee camps along the Thai border. And um, he was actually he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by the Dalai Lama, I think four or five times. There's a beautiful photograph and I've seen a paintings made from this photograph. Um, it's, there's, one of, uh, there's one of them in the, the Gratitude Hut at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and, and it's Mahagosananda and the Dalai Lama are bowing to each other and they're, they're both bent way over. Each one is trying to get lower. To show more res- the greater respect, and uh, Mahagosananda used to come here to IMS, and toward the end, once in a while, and, and he he ended his life in a small Cambodian temple not far from here, where there's a peace pagoda. He was living there when he when he died, and and uh, I remember he came here at one time when I was on retreat and when I was on staff, and. Um, I used to go there and occasionally and and pay my respects and um, i didn't he didn't know me, but the last time I saw him, I went uh, to pay res- to pay my respects I went for a visit and um, <clears throat> as he towards the end of his life he lot a, lost a lot of his um, a lot of mental capacities of a certain kind were had were had really fallen away. Uh, Maybe he had Alzheimer's, I'm not sure, some form of dementia. But um, but I went to see him, and uh, it was in a, a small uh, hut where he was living, a small cabin, Kuti. And I went in, and the, there was a monk who was kind of looking after him, his attendant. And, and he said, yes, you, he said, he's in his room, you can go and say hello and pay respects. And so I went in, and I, I bowed, and... Um, he was not speaking at that point. I don't think he spoke much at all, if if at all. And um, he 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 uh, he was just beaming with this huge smile, and he he started taking um, a bar of soap and some other things off his shelf, some razor blades and and things that monks tend to give to one another. Those are what you have, or you know, things to shave your head and soap and. <laughs> And he was giving me these gifts, and and uh, but that wasn't the real gift. The gift was it was like being bathed in love, just being bathed in love and light. <laughs> these words are from uh, the Tevija Sutta. Just as if a mighty trumpeter were with little difficulty to make a proclamation to the four directions, so by the liberation of mind through the development of loving kindness, one sets an example, leaving nothing untouched there, nothing unaffected there. So that's that's some of the quality that sometimes if we're lucky, we, 
we feel from beings who have developed this quality to this place of boundlessness and it just flows out and we can bathe in that. So there's the words uh, that come up in this part that speak to some of the qualities there that uh, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. And in my, in my, the way I understand that this is that it points to the fact that that when hatred, hostility, and ill will are absent from the mind and heart, then metta is just there. Non-hatred, non-ill will is there. They're just the natural response of the heart that's free from these um, other energies. And we can also bring some intentionality to this there's a, a teaching of the Buddha, which I know one of my colleagues uh, mentioned, but I'm going to uh, repeat it again because I think it's really important. Maybe Joseph even said it the other night. I wasn't able to be here because of my my ban, my being banished. <laughs> and now I'm back, <laughs> hopefully. But it's whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. And the Buddha spoke about this at least one way is in terms of abandoning unwholesome thoughts and cultivating wholesome ones, abandoning thoughts of sensual desire and cultivating thoughts of renunciation, abandoning thoughts of cruelty and cultivating compassion. And one teaching is said, if one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of kindness, one has abandoned thoughts of ill will to cultivate thoughts of kindness. And then one's mind inclines to thoughts of kindness. And in one mind, any one mind moment, there can't be both a wholesome and an unwholesome quality there at the same time. They might follow on one upon the other one quickly, but they can't both be there at the same time. And so by intentionally cultivating thoughts of care, of goodwill. We purify the mind stream, at least in those moments, both by the presence of that wholesome quality and by the absence of ill will, freed from hatred and ill will. And just as there are unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, which we've pointed to as the the root causes of suffering in our lives and in the world, there are also wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or we could say generosity, love, and wisdom, and a positive expression of those. And I think it's important for us to reflect upon the fact that when these energies of the kilesas are not present, or when the mind is not under their sway, then the wholesome roots of non-hatred, non-delusion, non-greed arise, or they're just revealed there. 
They're just become our natural response to life. Because the mind and the heart's inherent basic nature is love. At least I see it that way, feel it that way. And so in this regard, we're not, metta practice isn't getting something we don't have and trying to stick it in there. (laughs) It's not what we're doing. It's already there. We just get the things that are obscuring it out of the way. It's already there. I'm going to leave. Uh, I'll have to stop tonight. So this is definitely going to be a third part to this talk. But I'll, I'll end with some words from Sharon Salzberg. When we feel love, our mind is expansive and open enough to include the entirety of life in full awareness, both its pleasures and its pains. And we feel neither betrayed by pain or overcome by it. And thus we can contact that which is undamaged within us, regardless of the situation. Metta sees truly that our integrity is inviolate, no matter what our life situation may be. We do not need to fear anything. We are whole. Our deepest happiness is intrinsic to the nature of our minds and is not damaged through uncertainty and change. You know, so often we approach this practice with an attitude where we see ourselves as someone who's confused with a lot of problems and we have to work on the confusion and fix the problems. And we judge our experience, then we judge ourselves based on our perception of that experience. We take it all personally and we use it as evidence of our flaws and our wrongness. But a profound possibility of this this practice is that, that it might lead us to actually befriending our own mind and heart. And free us from the subtle cruelty of self-improvement. That, that causes us to see ourselves as flawed or wrong or damaged. And to contact that within us, as Sharon said, which is undamaged, could never be damaged. All right, I'll leave, I'll end with this poem I love. It has an elephant in it. So it gets us back to my start. This is a, another poem by Matty Weingast from his book, The First Freed Women, that are these interpretations of poems from the Terigatta. This is by a nun named Dantika. While walking along the river, after a long day meditating on Vulture Peak, and Vulture Peak is, is uh, I've been there, it's outside Rajagaha, where the, the story took place. So it's in the same place as the story. While walking along the river, after a long day meditating on Vulture Peak, I watched an elephant splashing its way out of the water and up the bank. 
Hello, my friend, a man waiting there said, scratching the elephant behind its ear. Did you have a good bath? The elephant stretched out its leg and the man climbed up, and the two rode off like that together. Seeing what had once been so wild, now a friend and companion to this good man, I took a seat under the nearest tree and reached out a gentle hand to my own mind. Truly, I thought, this is why I came to the woods. So we'll just sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for coming tonight. And if you have the energy, we'll do some chanting. We'll chant the, this beautiful sutta at nine o'clock. So please come back if you wish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.